electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'm going to make friends, just trying to make you a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, explain days like today. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me, at Jim Kramer. Look, every day I wake up, I know, an insane hour, like 3.45 a.m., and I look, at, I look for that crack, that, that chink in the armor, the first sign that a recession is really upon us. Or at least it's right around the corner. I mean, somewhere, right? Some address. I mean, that includes today. Solid session. Dow advances 141 points. S&P inches up 0.57%. NASDAQ gains 0.73%. After all, we know that this... This collapse, it's got to be happening somewhere, right? I mean, a recession is all that anyone ever seems to talk about anymore. I get it. Can you really have the largest tech merchant bank go poof and not think it'll be a knockout blow for the next generation of startups? Was Credit Suisse that irrelevant to the global economy? I went to work there. Almost. Uh, It's a major operation, and it just went under. Can a couple of crypto banks vanish with no impact to the economy? Is it really possible that the relationship between the inorganic two-year treasury and the inert 10-year treasury can be defied by reality? Seriously, shouldn't the eve of destruction, shouldn't those signs be everywhere? I mean, isn't the credit crunch all around us? I mean, shouldn't we be able to just be like, reach for it, look for it like the purloined letter? Like this? Tasty. Well, let me tell you a little story. I pulled up, for instance, with the Salesforce people the other day, and all I could think of was, wow, how bad it must feel to be the owner of that giant Salesforce tower in San Francisco that Boston Properties owns, by the way. Think about it. You have this massive headquarters built just before COVID hit, and then the Ohana bails and starts everyone working from home just at the time when it was one of the safest streets in the country. Now you got to cross to the other side of the street to avoid the San Francisco panhandlers who don't seem to take no for an answer. Sounds awful, right? Epicenter of the recession? Center of the credit crunch? But then I go and read an interview with the head honchos of Boston Properties. They're the rulers of the tower. They actually own it. Are they choking on vacancies? It's the opposite. 
They've got multiple inquiries to get into that building. They have many people who want to lease it, maybe more than there is space. And that's just one of several cities where Boston Properties has incredibly low vacancies. We're talking millions and millions of square feet of what are supposed to be ghost towns, aren't they? In reality, they're anything but. Most are full almost to the brim. Sure, you could say that because they have the best properties, Class A buildings, that's why it's happening. I say if we were truly headed into a recession, there wouldn't be a Class A property. They'd all be flunking. Still, maybe we should look at, say, I don't know, have a lower-end real estate. Maybe that's too high. What's some, something commercial or residential that might be begging if the economy deteriorates dramatically? Hey, how about timeshares? Nobody buys timeshares on their own. They have to be sold and sold aggressively and then financed. Always incredibly difficult when times are tough. And there is a credit crunch. Trust me. So I go to the premier time. Tasty credit crunch. So I go to the premier timeshare company, never talk with your mouthful, marry on vacations worldwide, and I'm ready to see how badly the timeshare industry is doing, right? I mean, who the heck is going to buy a timeshare in this environment? I mean, business must be dead in there, right? Wrong. Marry on vacations. Mayor Vacations just racked up 12% contract sales growth for the quarter. They're predicting a very solid year for 2023, too. Up 5% to 9% for 2020. Uh, just now, just now, last quarter. Business is about as robust as it has ever been. If things were truly weak, why would they bother to even put out guidance instead of giving out great guidance? They're clearly not worried. But how about those tens and twos? Don't they know about the tens and twos? Don't they see the credit crunch all over the floor? What if Merit Vacations is some kind of outlier, though? All right, hey, maybe they're really great. All right, let's go down a step. Let's dial into a timeshare competitor travel and leisure company, the old Wyndham Destinations, largest in the country. All right, they're a tad more circumspect, and they are tightening up their lending standards. But when asked if they're seeing a slowdown, managers said, and they'd say it empirically, in lower close rates, that's how you tell it, and the close rates are strong. Of course, they're wary, but we're all wary, right? I mean, we have to. The media says we have to be wary, but their business is fine. The big hedge funds, the billionaire hedge funds, they say we have to be wary, but their business is good. And, and you know what? I, I found myself saying, ain't these folks ever heard about yield curve inversion? How about retail? Doesn't, isn't retail, I mean, just retail's got to be. Retail, are you in there, retail? I mean, you got to I can't find it. Look, got to be ground zero for the coming collapse, right? Yet where are the bankruptcies besides Party City? Which, which frankly, wasn't worth the helium it peddled. Somehow the deeply troubled Bed Bath & Beyond is still alive. The stores are still open, even as they continue to lay off their employees and they'd be better off as boleros. We've had red-hot economies in the past with more retail closures than we're seeing right now. Wasn't GameStop supposed to be next? Remember them? They just had their first profitable quarter in years, not even by doing anything extreme. GameStop simply decided to focus on brick and mortar, and it paid off. Must be all those NFTs, perhaps? But there's got to be severe retail week this summer, really, right? I mean, I mean, when we get, I mean, when you get to the detritus, I mean, well, anyway, I checked on the National Real Estate Investment Trust because I feared maybe, maybe in there, maybe the credit crunch is in there. National REITs, National REITs. Turns enough, I listened to the Federal Realty Conference call. This is the largest 
shopping center REIT in the country. Business may be the strongest I can ever recall, and I've followed this company for 15 years. In the Q&A session, analysts after pesky analysts in search of recessionary scalp tried to create some controversy about one of their properties out west that might not have been leasing as well as, as they thought. The exercise is futile. Federal Realty's numbers were extraordinary. Okay, so how about REITs that aren't as good as Federal Realty? Hey, Kimco, they own 532 of the strip shopping centers they don't like so much. 96% occupancy. I don't call that recession. How about the 97 for Tanger? That's the biggest owner of all price outlet centers, although that's more of a trade-down play. Man, this credit crunch is supposed to be everywhere. I got to tell you, one broom and it's gone. There's actual weakness in auto retailers. Right now, I'm not a fan of Lithium Motors or Auto Nation, two gigantic car dealerships. But these two stocks sell at roughly six times earnings. And the airline companies are actually extremely profitable, buying back a lot of stuff. Now, it's true. It is true that Carvana may be the weak link here. And I saw, it was like, you know, what was that one that used to have the, the, the little you know, cunt kind of toy in there. I mean, that, but that wasn't a credit crunch thing. That was something else. I don't think anybody else is going to be taken down by the pin action of Carvana. It's just one less competitor. Who cares? Again, though, the question has to be, how can AutoNation and Lithium not be cruising for a bruise here? Their buyers need financing. That's going to be hard to come by. They need financing. Everyone needs financing. There's got to be a credit crunch in that industry. They're making less per vehicle, too. If you own a car and you want to buy a car, you need a finance, right? You need a finance. And it's going to be at a much higher interest rate unless you pay cash. And that's why rate hikes tend to crush new and used car sales. But the dealerships themselves are very bullish. They're not seeing the credit crunch, even as their balance sheets aren't great. But if we're on the verge of a recession because of a credit crunch, their business should be crumbling now. And no one should be giving anyone credit, not the dealer, not the buyer. It's just not happening. Next, how many articles have you read about the big e-commerce companies coming, pulling back, right? Aren't they giving up? I keep seeing these analysts speak about how there's a retrenchment here and it's wrecking the warehouse industry. Fine. But then why is the largest owner of this warehouse real estate, Prologis, at 97% occupation? That's about as good as it gets better. Now, all these portals into the economy could be clouding up quickly because of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and Silvergate. Maybe the ripples are deep, low, about to emerge any second. But the fact is, we haven't seen them yet. Not in this. We've not seen this. And my information is fresh as the day it was said, which is not that long ago. Now, some of it could be could, like what we heard last night from John Gibson. He's a straight shooting new CEO of Paychex, the largest payroll processor for small, medium-sized businesses in this country. Gibson told us the weakness we see isn't the weakness from Main Street. Companies are still competing with each other for talent all over the country. Inflation, Jay, inflation. Although Paychex is worried about the mini banking crisis, they're saying that the actual pain, the actual pain has to do with the group that can take the most pain. The house of pain. The rich. Whether we're talking people with gigantic bank accounts, bringing with cash from the previous venture capital deals, or the ones with broken SPACs that just crushed it or just before the SPAC wave disappeared, or the people who are holding back on the RH furniture, or the well-compensated engineers and programmers being laid off by Fang and friends. Not the most sympathetic crowd, but hurting nonetheless. Sure, we can say it's just a matter of time before this surfaces, before this just jumps off the shelf. The recession's inevitable, right? It has to be. We keep hearing that. Pay no attention to the data behind the curtain. The great and powerful yield curve has spoken. Can we please just agree on one thing, though? At this very moment, unless you've been laid off by a tech company that gives you months of glorious severance, or you work at Party City or Bed Bath & Beyond, you're probably doing pretty darn well right now. 
Bottom line, I keep searching for signs of recession, and what I find is nothing better but nothing worse, at least for now. While I promise to keep looking, and I always will, it increasingly feels like a visit to the proctologist, something you can only do so many times a day before it just plains exhausts you to be euphemistic about it. Maybe the recession's coming. Maybe the credit crunch is right upon us. But you know what? Until then, I think pretty invisible. Let's go to Jack in Ohio. Please, Jack. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Jimmy. My, my pleasure, Jack. What's happening? Hey, with the recent pullback in energy, and it looks like it's trying to rebound some, do you think it's a good time to add more DVN, Devon Energy? Well, as we said the other day on our conference call for our uh, charitable trust for the investing club, that was the one we didn't want to add to. They missed the quarter really badly. Where do you stay tuned? You're going to hear an energy company later on the show that I think is going to distinguish itself as the one that maybe you should buy. Let's go to David in Florida, please. David. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, David. Mm-hmm. So let's talk railroads. I'm particularly curious about um, whether to invest in Union Pacific right now. What would you say about that? I think Union Pacific is very cheap. It got put down because the last quarter wasn't that good. And, and then it was subsequently uh, the East Palestine, Palestine time situation with Norfolk Southern drove it down further. But I think Union Pacific actually represents some value here. I'm not nuts about it. I need to see the next quarter, but I think you're okay. All right, look, I keep searching. I look every day for the in, inside, inside for the credit crunch. And what, I, I, I'm just not seeing it. What I find is nothing better, nothing worse, at least for now. I'm in my Natural gas prices are pulling back from their highs. What should you make of a company like EQG? I'm getting the latest from the company's top press. Then RH got crushed after earnings. RH, where are you? Um, but is it time to flop back into the stock? I'm digging the numbers and seeing if the dip could be a buying opportunity. And this week, the CFTC charged Binance and its founder with numerous violations. So what could this mean for the whole crypto cohort? I'm discussing with former CFTC chair Tim Masson. So stay with... Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand. NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. 
with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. At this time last year, oil and gas prices were climbing aggressively higher, of course, in the wake of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. We figured there'd be a huge energy shortage in Europe, given that they got so much natural gas from Russia. That conclusion was very right, until it wasn't. Energy prices peaked last summer much higher than here, but since then they've tanked, in part because we had a pretty mild winter over the world. Both crude and natural gas fell to new 52-week lows this month, and that gas in particular has been obliterated. You know, this is down 80% from its highs. So what the heck do we do with the companies that produce, move, and export natural gas, given the surprising ongoing weakness in the underlying commodity? Do we just have to give up on the entire group? Maybe there's a reason to buy. Take EQT Corp. That's the number one natural gas production company in this country. Focus on the Marcellus Shale, the Utica Shale, and the Appalachian Basin. Good company, but very tough stock to own if you see natural gas staying depressed for an extended period. At least it seems so on the surface. So let's check in with Toby Rice. He's the president and CEO of EQT. Get a better read in the situation. Mr. Rice, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Okay, so Toby, um, you generated almost $2 billion of free cash flow. You achieved investment-grade credit rating. Your stock was at the S&P 500. And we have one of the worst natural gas markets I've ever seen. How is this possible? Well, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, the gas prices have come down pretty significantly, simply put, because the weather did not show up. Uh, we've had one of the warmest winters uh, since 1950. And as a result, that's left about 500 BCF in storage. Um, all said on a, on a BCF per day, that's about 12 BCF a day of demand destruction that we saw as a result of lack of weather. 10 BCF a day came from weather and another 2 BCF a day came from uh, Freeport being offline. Now, Freeport's back online and I think we're going to see operators adjust their activity levels and hopefully the gas markets will balance to a price that's probably closer to the cost of supply in this country, which is closer to probably closer to four dollars than it is three. And that's where we'll see the balance of more sustainable pricing in the future. OK, that's Freeport, which is a giant facility to be able to export liquefied natural gas. Now, uh, obviously, you have to be pretty proficient at how to hedge when you're at these levels. You were actually able to craft a price of natural gas that was profitable, weren't you? Yes. And, and, you know, the name of the game in a volatile commodity world, which we will be experiencing uh, as long as these pipeline delays, permits and blockages take place. Um, the keys to success are pretty simple um, to be successful and, and be resilient as an energy producer. You need to have a very low cost structure, which EQT um, has, has one of the lowest cost structure in industry. You need to have an investment grade balance sheet, which we have one of the only gas peers that, that can claim that. Uh, we need to have a balanced hedge portfolio, which we've done, caring about the floors, but also making sure that we, we care about the ceilings we're putting on our business. 
And then on, on top of that, you need to have really solid, disciplined uh, capital allocation. So all of these things are going to lead to more durable free cash flow stream. And unlike peers where you've seen the free cash flow deteriorate in a lower commodity price environment that we're in today, EQT has been durable. And we're still going to be printing you know, high single digit uh, free cash flow yields. And even in this low commodity price environment at Strip, we're forecasted um, to uh, produce over $12 billion of free cash flow over the next five years. That's an amount of free cash flow that's going to allow us to retire the entirety of our market cap. So even in these depressed commodity prices, uh, a lot of things to get excited about with EQT and all of this is to give investors the best risk-adjusted exposure to natural gas pricing. Okay, so how about this uh, Tug Hill acquisition, which sounds like immediately it's going to make money for you. Absolutely. And, you know, in addition to your your, your generic, you know, financial accretion on NAV per share, cash flow per share, one of the things that we look for in our M&A strategy is to find deals that will actually lower our cost structure. And that low cost structure that we claim today is only going to get lower with Tug Hill. Our break-even cost for our business will drop about 15 cents. That's over 10% cost reduction there. And when we claim these synergies, um, that will have an impact of dropping our uh, improving the cost benefits from this another four cents. And Jim, every penny at our scale translates to $20 million of free cash flow. So we're really excited about having these assets become a part of the portfolio. Well, we also know, I mean, if you're bullish, I am on 2024 and natural gas, you're set up to make money. It's not like you just decided to write this industry off. You have a, you put on positions that will make it so if natural gas goes up, which we have to expect if there's more export, you will profit big. Yeah, absolutely. We're I've never, Jim, I've been in this business since the shale revolution started, and I've never been more excited about the future uh, of natural gas specifically. What we've seen in this industry is, is a clear differentiation from gas, uh, from fossil fuels. You know, natural gas, I think people, the world is waking up and recognizing not only the decarbonizing impacts that natural gas can have on the world, that's important as the world's thinking about transitioning to lower carbon fuels, but also understanding the energy security benefits that you get from natural gas. You know, key lesson learned in 22 is that energy security matters. Without energy security, you cannot transition. Just look at what happened in Europe. And the key to energy security, look where the world turned in 22. They turned to American natural gas in the form of LNG. It is going to create a tremendous opportunity for natural gas in the future. Well, Toby, you mentioned an area in Germany where it's definitely uh, shot itself in the foot. There's another area not that far from you where you and I live, and that's called New England. And I think that they've shut down far more than they can produce. At what point do they recognize that you are actually really EQT, their only major hope? Jim, the, the, the crazy thing that's happening uh, around the it's happening around the world, but specifically in places like New England, you're seeing these extreme disconnects um, in the market because of these lack of pipelines. You know, it's remarkable that New England gas prices correlate higher to Europe than they do in Pennsylvania, which is only 300 miles away. The answer is, is very simple. And one of my life goals is to give my mom, who still lives in Boston, the freedom to be able to lower her energy costs by over six times by getting rid of that oil tanker in her basement to heat her home and get her cleaner, cheaper, more affordable, reliable natural gas. Well, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I know this is an issue that our show has championed since the very beginning. Uh, when when we first saw what you're doing and recognized that the hope for energy independence is actually not a hope at all. It's a reality if they would just let it occur. 
Anyway, I want to thank Toby Rice, equity president and CEO. I've wanted you on the show for a very long time, Toby. Thank you so much for coming on Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. We'll be right back. Coming up, this company has furnished plenty of profits. But should a soft quarter have you flipping the kitchen table? Find out next. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Last night, there was one earnings report that was very quizzical. We were focused on it like a laser, though. It's called RH. That's the high-end furniture retailer formerly known as Restoration Harbor. Now, here's a stock that had been a real dog for the last year and a half. It was so great for so long. And it's never been able to mount a sustained recovery. But RH is important because CEO Gary Friedman was very early and very right with his dire predictions for what would happen with the economy and more important for retail. Almost exactly a year ago, RH reported a not-so-hot quarter. But more importantly, the conference call was incredibly downbeat. Freeman hammered on about how they'd seen a major softening demand after Russia invaded Ukraine, and he warned that inflation was becoming both ingrained and usually disruptive. Then he got a little ahead of himself, bizarrely invoking the big short, Bear Stearns, but I'm not exactly in a position to criticize other people for being melodramatic, am I? At the time, Freeman's diatribe was met with mockery. Were we really supposed to believe that the war in Ukraine far off in Europe was causing RH's well-heeled customers to stop buying expensive sofas? Sounded nuts. But he was right. He turned out to be at the vanguard. Within a couple of months, we started seeing hideous shortfalls from a wide variety of expensive retailers, and eventually became clear that in March or April of last year, there was a huge shift in consumer spending habits. People stopped buying physical goods. Instead, they went for experiences or services. They turned out to be long on money, but short on time. In retrospect, Friedman was right to be downbeat. And that's why we were paying close attention to RH's results just last night, even though the stock's been in a no-go zone for a while now. So what did we learn? Nothing good. Let's start with the actual numbers, which were suboptimal. RH had a small revenue shortfall with sales down 14.5% year-over-year. Big gross margin decline. We never want to see that. Major earnings miss. While RH had already pre-announced some of these numbers in early February, the results still managed to disappoint Wall Street's already lowered expectations. Worse, the guidance for the current quarter came in much weaker than expected, both on the sales front and the margin front. Jeez, the four-year forecast was also pretty Darn grim. The house of pain. So the numbers were not good at all. And yet somehow Gary Freeman's initial commentary in the conference call was even more negative than the numbers. In his prepared remarks, Freeman said that persistent inflation was having a very hard impact on the luxury housing market, which in turn impacts RH. When you throw in the damage from stock market declines and the recent banking crisis, he expects that the industry, and I'm going to quote, likely gets worse before it gets better. 
Freeman then went on to say that difficult times like these are when the wheat is separated from the shaft, so to speak. He said companies often are tempted to adopt, quote, short-term plans that lead to mostly similar outcomes, end quote. And he made it clear that RH would not be doing this. Instead, he plans to forge ahead with the grand luxury ambitions that the company has been communicating for the past couple of years. That 17th century estate in England, luxury hotel, uh, luxury guest houses, private planes, yachts, and eventually the sale of fully furnished luxury homes, condos, and apartments. Friedman conceded that the company's strategy was not for the faint of heart. But he also noted that RH got ahead of the situation by issuing $2.5 billion worth of debt when interest rates were incredibly low. He's also conducted a recent round of layoffs to the point where RH doesn't need to worry about funding its long-term plans, even in a tough short-term environment. Then the question and answer session began. And in, in explaining why RH guided so conservatively, Friedman again got started on the difficulties of the current moment. He talked about how scary it was to see the banks run in California, where RH is based. He invoked 2008. He said in many words that he was basically expecting some additional bank failures. Uh, t- taking the, t- really t- compared it to the time span between the fall of Bear Stearns and the fall of Lehman Brothers. Friedman also said quite candidly that RH simply had no idea what this economy is going to look like. He talked about the 70s and early 80s when the Fed thought they had inflation under control multiple times, only for it to flare up again and again, leading to another round of aggressive rate hikes. This was a big point of emphasis for Friedman. Unlike many other CEOs we've heard from who now want the Fed to back off, in some cases because they're struggling under the weight of higher rates, Friedman actually wants the Fed to go all scorched earth and ensure that we defeat inflation for good. He even said that Jay Powell should be president if the Fed wins the fight against inflation. It was a different kind of conference call. In the end, the the conference call did get a little... A tad repetitive. Friedman kept talking about how bad things are right now, saying that he's got no idea how the rest of the year will unfold, but also insisting that RH won't deviate from his strategy. So what were the key takeaways, at least from us, for RH quarter? Well, first, the near term does remain insanely difficult to plan for. Banking mini crisis of the past three weeks seems to have really spooked wealthier customers and some luxury furniture CEOs. Inflation still needs to come down in order for anything to work. And at least at RH specifically, the near term numbers they're going to keep being ugly as their customers cut back on spending while the company continues its aggressive expansion plan. I know it's kind of it's just it's it's a little counterintuitive what he's doing. But while I acknowledge that you have to take Friedman seriously because he was so right early and so right last year. Do you know what? I actually came out of last night's conference call feeling a bit more sanguine than Friedman himself. And I never like to get ahead of a CEO, but I think he's in more of a funk than I am. See, first, while I agree that beating inflation is the top priority, I actually think we've made a ton of progress toward that goal already. And as much as we don't want a banking crisis, it will definitely help in the fight against inflation. We've certainly got to keep monitoring the banks, too. But I wouldn't be surprised if the government's got the crisis under control, or at least in the near term. As for RH in particular, call me crazy. I want to buy the stuff, not sell it. Buy it. RH moved lower today, down 3%. That's ugly. And how could it not after that miss in lowball forecast? But after listening to the conference call and understanding that the forecast already incorporates Friedman's many concerns about the economy, I'd be willing to bet that things don't turn out to have, we will not have a Lehman moment and that his grim guidance was, frankly, too grim. So let me give you the bottom line here. For men I respect, Gary Friedman, prescient when he started worrying about the economy a year ago, we got to take his ongoing concerns seriously, of course. But I think he got too negative last night. It's time for him to recognize Things just aren't that bad. I expect to be pleasantly surprised here. Short term, though, Friedman could be right about the high end. He's got the least, he's got the order book, and the high end is where the pain is most visible. Even if, as Lenin once said, if the rich are unhappy, it is indeed their own fault.
Let's go to Ben in New Jersey. Ben. Tim, uh, how's it going? Ben, it's going well. How about you? Oh, man, I couldn't complain. Beautiful day. Philly's opener. Um, yeah. Question about Black Rifle Coffee Company. I've read a lot about them. They're partnering up with a contract in Walmart, and especially with the Dallas Cowboys. I want to know, um, with their coffee sales growing, should I continue to buy no, there's only one coffee company we're recommending. We're recommending Starbucks. It's not a political situation. I know that, that sure enough, that Howard Schultz, former CEO, back on the hill there. But I just think we want consistent growth. We want China. We want Europe. We want well-managed enterprise. We want a program that, of loyalty that is good. And we want to be able to have cold coffee when we want it. Starbucks, travel trust name, the one tone. Long term, I, I do expect to be pleasantly surprised, not short term, by RH. Short term, I expect the pain because there's no way Gary Freeman doesn't know it. That's going to happen. But longer term, demand's gotten too negative. All right, much more Mad Money Head, including my exclusive with the former CFTC chairman, Tim Masson. From Coinbase to Binance, I know you want to know about these things. The crypto craze has hit a few road speed bumps from the CFTC. I'm going to go straight to the store and find out what the heck is going on here. Then our dependence on the yield curve has gotten nothing short of insane. So how should you really be sizing up equities in this market? I'm going to give you another way to look at it, and I think it's going to make a lot more sense to you. Of course, all your calls rapid fire tonight's just a little lighting round, so stay with Kramer. Last Wednesday, Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in America, got a Wells notice from the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is typically something that happens right before the SEC files formal charges. Then on Monday, the CFTC filed charges against Binance. That's the largest crypto exchange in the world, along with its founder, alleging a host of violations. Now, you'd think these moves could shake the crypto ecosystem to its core, right? But Coinbase stock only dropped 14% last Thursday, up roughly 81% for the year. Meanwhile, Bitcoin reached its highest level year to date. So why does this industry full of scams just keep on trucking? Let's take a close look with Tim Mass. Tim is the former chairman of the CFTC, who's currently a research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School, and he's also an adjunct, prof- adjunct professor in Georgetown Law, and, but most importantly, he's our go-to expert on cryptocurrency regulation. Mr. Masson, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, it's great to be with you again. Thank you, Tim. All right, so Tim, we need your help here because we know that Coinbase uh, just got this Wells notice. We know uh, you're my classmate from law school, but regardless, we know Wells notice is not something you you want from the government. Same time, Binance, another organization, CFTC, which used to run, is really coming down hard on them. Can you explain what these mean and whether people should understand that, that there is a gravity to what's going on here? Well, there absolutely is. The case against Binance, I think, is incredibly important. It's the biggest trading uh, crypto trading platform, and this is a very powerful complaint. It alleges that Binance and its founder, CZ Zhao, basically deliberately and systematically violated the law by cultivating U.S. business when they weren't registered in the U.S., by ignoring requirements pertaining to knowing your customers, preventing money laundering, complying with sanctions, and so forth. And the complaint itself is quite detailed. It appears to be based on a lot of inside information. So it's very, very important case. On the Wells notice with Coinbase, we still have to wait to see what the SEC is going to do. We don't know whether that's going to be 
an enforcement action that says they really should register as a securities exchange, or perhaps it's going to be focused on their staking business. We'll just have to wait and see. But these are very important actions. Well, Tim, I, I myself uh, felt I'm very, I, I think Mr. Gensler's doing a great job, and I'm concerned that many talks back and forth with Coinbase. I myself think that they are, that what, what they're doing is creating securities all the time. But, Tim, I'm beginning to wonder whether I'm, I've fallen behind, whether there aren't people who just say, look, if you could have something like Silvergate, if you, if you could have something like, like, like Silicon Valley Bank, it's more secure to actually have what Coinbase is selling. I, I guess. Sure. There can be a case that the law is out of date when it comes to what's a security. Well, one can make that argument. Look, there's a lot of irony today, right? I mean, we had, you know, everyone feared a run on stable coins, and the run almost happened because we had a traditional bank fail in which, you know, USDC had put a lot of its money. To me, that just says again that we've got to create a framework for regulating stable coins. I don't think the bank regulators. I think their their uh, strategy of trying to limit connections with the traditional financial sector, you know, in the long run, it would be much better to try to bring stablecoins within the regulatory perimeter. But on the question of what's a security, what's not, I mean, look, the crypto industry thinks it deserves a whole new set of rules. The SEC isn't going to be willing to do that. Uh, I don't think there's enough support in Congress for that. Um, my attitude toward this is it doesn't really matter whether a token falls in the bucket of a security or a commodity. What we need are just some basic investor protection standards, regardless of what you call it. And there are ways that we could get there that I've argued for. And that would involve, you know, the SEC and the CFTC getting together, really, and creating some common standards. I think that would be a much more reasonable, incremental way to go. And later on, we can sort out, you know, exactly which ones are securities. Well, should the uh, different organizations be able to create a new coin every day? I mean, given the fact that I see, I, look, there was a lawsuit just yesterday, SEC see someone created a lot of coins and stole a lot of money from people. I don't think that this is the right way to, to run a, a, a banking system. Well, we, you know, we can't prevent people from doing things like that. And we, you know, look, we want to encourage private innovation. I've always said in, in my uh, comments on this industry, we need a regulatory framework that allows for innovation as long as we just ensure investor protection and transparency. We shouldn't be trying to shut this down. We shouldn't be trying to tell people exactly what they should and shouldn't invest in. We should let people make their own choices, but we've got to have much better investor protection, much better transparency, and just compliance with the law, which is what we're seeing, at least in the CFTC's allegations, Binance wasn't doing. Well. Why is Binance, why, are, why aren't they closed today in America? Why are you allowed to deal with them? Why isn't it just shut? Well, you know, it's, it's an offshore exchange. The argument in the, in the complaint is basically that they should have been preventing U.S. persons from accessing the platform. But not only were they not preventing that, they were actually helping people access the platform. And that's what makes the allegations so strong. You know, they, they were systematically cultivating uh, U.S. business, helping people, you know, use VPNs to get around restrictions. Uh, and they had all other sorts of programs to do that. So that's why it's kind of really a shocking complaint. 
Well, let me ask you just the last one, wrap things up on Coinbase. Uh, I'm from the school which just says that you don't taunt the SEC, that the SEC is hallow ground, that the commissioner works hard. You don't make fun of them. You don't tweet. You don't just call them basically just fools who know what they're doing. Is that out of date? Am I just too old school? No, that's not out of date. Now, you know, the Coinbase folks will say they've tried. Uh, It's kind of hard to know. Um, you know, who's where the truth really lies. They've said they've tried to work with the SEC on a number of things. Um, I think, again, the, the challenge for us is that the existing frameworks, the crypto industry don't think they fit. The regulators think, you know, we're not going to make new rules. Somehow we've got to just have more of an incremental approach here to get in some basic investor protection standards. And, you know, I've written about ways to do that, but we haven't gotten there yet. Well, look, your common sense. I think common sense wins in the end, or I sure hope so. Thank you so much to Tim Masson, former chair of the CFTC. Tim, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you, Jim, for having me. All right, man, money. be back after the break. Coming up. What's in your mind, Kramerica? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. It is time. It's up for the lightning round. You see me say bye-bye, you don't play the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, Dad, Time for the lightning round, everybody. I want to start with Eric in Ohio. Eric! Jimmy, chill a big Buckeye booyah to ya from Cleveland, Ohio. Done your way, partner. Done your way. Bring it on. Come on, hit me. Hit me. Uh, thanks for all you do for us retail investors. My question is about a company that you've liked before. Uh, their last quarter was good with an earnings beat. They got a P.E. of 32.06. Dividend yield of 4.91. Is Crown Castle a buy? I saw it. You know, I, there was a Moffat Nason piece in it, like all of them. I read the piece. It took a really long time. It should have been shorter because I wanted some time to be able to eat some, some of my crunch. But I like it here. I think, I think it's a good situation. You're right. It's been finally cheap enough. Can we please go to Brent in California? Brent. Hey, Jim. Uh, Brent here. First time, long time. Hey, I recently took a small position in Zim Integrated Shipping. Uh, net it comes up, gross profit, profitability is looking good, and the free cash flow is looking no, good. No, no, net income is not going to be up, and, and it's losing money, and I don't want you to be in it. I've been right about the shippers for a long time, and I'm sticking with my negative view. I'm sorry. Can we go to Betsy in California, please? Betsy! Hey, Jim. I love Betsy. all your books, by the way, especially Confessions of a Street Addict and the Menumbra Investing Club. Love that. Yes. Anyway, Jim, today I'm calling you about a company that almost looks on a chart profile like Estee Lauder. And the reason I'm interested in it is uh, I listened to the RH call. And what occurred to me was people aren't interested in dressing their houses. They're interested in dressing themselves, including their skin. And, Jim, long time ago, you and I both made a lot of money on InMode. And right now, I check to see exactly what is the growth, what is the profit margin, and what is the PE. And the growth Jeez. is 12 and a half percent. The Betsy, profit right. margin it's, is it's 35 all the way back. It's down 26. Tw- it's, we got to go back and look at this thing. This thing's gotten too cheap. 
Uh, this is, I like, you know I like this company. I'm going back to Inmo. We're going to do some work on Inmo. Betsy is owed that. And thank you for being a member of the club. How about Brock in North Carolina? Brock. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Brock. Booyah. Hey, man. Uh, wanted to ask you about Helix, uh, ticker HLX. No, no, we're uh, going to stick with Halliburton. It's come down so much. Halliburton has been developed into a, but it's much cheaper than yours. I'm sorry. How about Steve Connecticut? Steve. Jim, my grandma adores you. It's her 90th birthday go. next month, and she's watching. Could you give a boo out Happy birthday. Tell her Jimmy Chill says happy birthday. All right, will do. Rosie. All right. She's- Rosie. Yeah, tell, tell Rosie. What's up? All right, she'd like to know about Affirm. With well, recession concerns. Uh, yeah, like, here's the problem with the firm. Okay, if the economy does turn down, this stock is going to go lower. You're now kind of, you know, I like Max. I think he's terrific. But there is an issue here. And the issue is, is that the economy has to stabilize. And too many people think things are negative. So, therefore, I'm going to have to say no to Rosie. Okay, I don't want her riveted to a firm. All right, let's go to Andy, Pennsylvania, please, Andy. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Um, so no problem. about interdigital communications. Oh, my God. That one, it's still kicking around. Uh, look, it's real cheap. It's got, I don't have the kind of growth I like. I, it's fine. You know what I'm going to put it in? Don't buy. That's don't some buy. category. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, trouble with the curve. Kramer cautions against the danger of having too much interest in the Fed. Next. Here goes my theme again. We all spend too much time talking about the yield curve for treasuries and not enough time talking about franchise value. I don't blame anyone for focusing on the bond market. When I got to Goldman Sachs 40 years ago, we were quizzed about the most important determiner of stock prices, and the answer always came back to 30-year treasuries, the so-called bellwether bond. We were in a high inflation world back then, and this bond told us when inflation was going to come down or not. It had a huge impact on what Wall Street was willing to pay for stocks. I get that. But there are some situations where the yield curve genuinely obscures the story. And you've got to resist the temptation to give up on companies just because the bond market says with one voice that we're likely headed for recession. For example, situations where a company's franchise value vastly exceeds the stock price. Frankly, our dependence on the yield curve has become a crutch that supports very lazy thinking. Do you think the Chinese Communist Party checked out their yield curve when they decided to let Alibaba split into six companies, setting that stock up 14% in a single day? Was NVIDIA's triumphant introduction introduction of graphics cards needed for generative AI dependent on the tens and twos? I don't think so. These endless abstruse treasury references have become brutally, intellectually oblivious distractions, and they're beginning to drive me nuts because we have plenty of Alibabas right here. And you can often gauge a franchise by figuring out what it would be worth in the event of an Alibaba-style breakup. But you know what? We don't even try because of a bond market relationship that's kept you out of some of the best action in years. 
take meta platforms. Here's a company that has a platform called Facebook, a platform called Instagram. It's a competitor of the most successful app of our time. TikTok, 53 billion hours up for grab there. It has WhatsApp messaging. It's a treat as an airport, probably worth billions of dollars. Nascent metaverse, which is uh, maybe a bit of a reach. But what would happen if Mark Zuckerberg decided on his own tomorrow he was going to break up meta the way Alibaba splitting into six separate businesses, even without the support of the People's Republic of China? I think the stock would open up 20 points, maybe even more, regardless of the action in the bond market that day. Or how about two suddenly ne'er-to-well major tech outfits, Amazon and Alphabet? If Amazon CEO Andy Jassy decided he was going to create a company that ran the best of breed web services business, a company that delivered fresh groceries, a company that dominates e-commerce, an advertising company, a separate online streaming service with NFL games, plus something that tells you jokes as it mentions that your package is at the door, named Alexa, do you think this thing would be stuck at a ride at 102 bucks? If Amazon spins off those businesses, I bet the stock works, no matter what we're seeing in the tens and the twos of that day or that year, for that matter. Don't get me started on what Alphabet might be worth. The best search engine meets the second best advertising platform, plus one of the most successful media companies, and they've all got these side hustles like self-driving cars. Tons of spin-off potential here, and you can close those dead last other bets that are scratches in the money derby. Finally, there's Disney. This morning, a very prominent analyst, Laura Martin from Needham, suggested that Apple should buy Disney. Well, that's not going to happen. It was an old thumb sucker. Except the fact that it was a great way to call out the franchise value of the company that is Disney. If the Chinese Communist Party were run the House of Mouse, they'd break off the theme parks and have the People's Liberation Army build lots more of them, put one in New Mexico, make as many Disney character movies as possible using degenerative AI, create a Disney fleet of cruise ships that would rival any of the public comparisons, maybe create a whole sports business around ESPN, spin off a merchandise business while developing a hotel chain, and of course employing Ike Perlmutter. You need to think of stocks like this. One reason this week's rally took so many people by surprise is that the action in the bond market said it can't, won't, and didn't happen. That's called the tyranny of dogma, people, not the creativity of capitalism. Do not let the yield curve blind you to opportunities because there's some tremendous ones out there. If only you're willing to look. If the Chinese Communist Party can do it, why can't you? I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.